0: This is episode 12 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with optometrist Dr. Patrick Quaid about vision-related learning difficulties and concussions. Thank you for letting us interview you today. Can we start by having you introduce yourself and a brief background?
1: Sure. Um, my name is Dr. Patrick Quaid. I'm an optometrist and I've done a PhD in Visual Science at the University of Waterloo. Um, I'm originally from the Republic of Ireland and I uh, did my optometry training in the UK. And after I finished my optometry, I practiced in Moorfields Eye Hospital in London for about three years and then came to Canada to do my PhD.
0: And what got you interested in optometry?
1: Well, as a child, I actually had, I was involved in a motor vehicle accident and I sustained a concussion when I was about eight, eight going on nine. And I was knocked out of commission probably for about two to three years, was nonverbal for nearly a full year of that, so I had a speech impediment, uh, had trouble speaking. But I also had a vision issue where I could still see 20-20 with each eye, but I had something called convergence insufficiency, so I couldn't team my eyes properly together. So when I would read, things would go double, I'd close one eye when I was reading because I figured out that was a good way to not see double, just to close one eye, not be binocular. And it took about two years, two and a half years, before somebody figured out that I actually had a vision issue. Uh, ended up going for vision therapy, which back then was really not done in in a widespread manner, and it still is not really mainstream. But after probably about six to six to nine months, I was no longer seeing double. Was doing a lot better and had my speech addressed as well with a speech path, and went from being basically what now would be considered a learning disabled student to an honor roll student within about a year and a half so that that motivated me to pursue optometry afterwards and and i was i was to be honest a little bit disappointed because when i went went through optometry we learned a little bit about binocular vision and vision therapy but it wasn't really a a core aspect of what was being taught so i pursued a phd in vision science to learn more about the visual system Uh, ended up being in an area related to glaucoma but actually psychophysics which looks at how the brain functions is really applicable to any area of vision care including binocular vision function.
0: And do you have a focused interest now in your practice?
1: Yeah um, what we've decided to do so we're a bit of an unusual eye care practice in that uh, unlike most optometrists we don't do we don't sell any eyewear so we don't sell glasses I mean obviously optometrists are licensed and they're permitted to sell eyewear and prescribe eyewear Um, We've decided just to focus purely on the rehabilitation of the visual system. So we can still write prescriptions and send the patients back to the routine optometrist. Um, But what we've decided to focus on is dealing with children with learning issues and dealing with children with um, concussion histories who also have eye-teaming issues. So our role is to work within a collaborative team model. So we work with uh, speech path, we work with psychology, we have sports medicine, physiotherapy, chiropractic. We work with a lot of different disciplines because... Concussion, for example, as you know, is a is a multidisciplinary area. But what we're, what I think makes our clinic very different is that we're also very research based. So we, we actually have a grant um, from the government called SHRED, which actually gives us money to help us to publish data and track data on these patients. So not only are we treating patients to better improve the quality of life, we're actually collecting the data as we're doing it and we're publishing it and hopefully adding to the literature and science, which is helping us to better understand concussions and learning issues and actually there's a lot of overlap between the two because there's really only two ways you can have a binocular vision problem. Either it's developmental, so you, if you look at the birth history of the child, if they're a preemie or they have lower birth weight, uh, for example, those have been recognized as risk factors for eye-teaming problems, or if you've had a concussion. So those things are really important for us because 40% of the brain, at least, is primarily visual machinery. So if you have a, a head injury, it's it's highly likely that the visual system will be involved. And Vision, if you compare it to example hearing, uh, I mean, we have got 1.2 million retinal ganglion cells connecting each optic nerve to the brain. And if you compare that to 30,000 ganglion cells connecting each ear to the brain, uh, the visual system is a very dominant sense. So it's, it's really important for us to look at that element very closely in our practice and try to tie it into things that we see every day in clinical practice. So
0: just going back to the visual system a little bit, as an optometrist, how do you think of or categorize the visual system?
1: To me, the visual system really consists of two main pathways. And, and depending on your discipline, you can talk about dorsal and ventral. You can talk about magnocellular or uh, central, peripheral, however you want to think about it. But when we look at our visual system, most of us think our vision is clear. But the reality is our, our, our horizontal span of awareness. So as I look at you, for example, I'm aware of everything that's going on in the room around me. I can see your colleague in the background. I can see a light off to the center, but I'm fixating on you. So I have central, what's called central peripheral integration. So my central vision, which is typically what optometrists would test and say, that's your 2020 vision. Um, your central vision's important, obviously, but your peripheral vision, which is actually blurry, because as I look at you, I know your colleague's in the background, but he's kind of blurry unless I release my fixation from you and then fix it on him. The best way to think about the visual system and categorize it, I think, is central peripheral integration because it's it's essentially the what is it and where is it pathway. So for example, if I'm driving a vehicle, car's in front of me, I can focus in on the license plate and read the license plate or I can kind of zone out and, and not necessarily be looking at the license plate, I know it's there, but I'm very peripherally aware of what's going on around me. So making sure that you know those two systems are always interacting and feeding each other, but but they really are two different systems with very different purposes. One is more of an identification system, and one is a more centration system in terms of where am I relative to other objects. So a visual sonar, if you like. If, If you're in a submarine, you would release a sound ping to figure out where you are. I always think of our peripheral vision as a visual form of sonar. So as I'm moving through an environment, if I'm in a grocery store or a mall, I don't have to look around everywhere to figure out where I am. I can look straight ahead, and my peripheral vision is able to automatically track and and localize what's going on around me whereas my central vision is for do i recognize the street sign can i can i read the street sign so that's internally how i tend to categorize the visual system whereas i i would say a, a lot of optometrists would also say you've got the functional aspect to your vision so the central peripheral but you also have the anatomical aspect so you would have the optic nerve the lens the cornea so you can also look at the eye in terms of a disease process so we're more about the rehabilitation in our clinic, so we're more focused on the function. If there's glaucoma or a disease process, obviously we would still detect that and, and, and refer that out to the appropriate person to deal with that, but we're primarily concerned about the functioning of the visual system.
0: And so within that visual system, there's the clarity of the vision, yeah. uh, and then you talked about the peripheral vision as well. Yeah. Are there different aspects or things within that that can be assessed?
1: Yes, and, and I think... There's different aspects within each area that can be assessed, but I think the most useful tests are actually the tests of central peripheral integration. So you're looking at how those two systems communicate to each other. So for example, something as basic as a saccade or saccade, depending where you're from. And a a saccade is a basic eye movement. So I, I move my eye from you and I move to the camera and I go back to you. That's a basic eye movement. If you think about what makes that up, if I'm looking at you before I look at the camera, I have to peripherally localize where it is and then I have to plan the eye movement and then release my fixation from you and land on the camera. So if you think of all those, all of the components that are important to that, you need intact peripheral awareness, you need stable fixation, you have to be able to release fixation, initiate a trajectory and land on the proper point. So for example, one test from that would be the king Divic test or the DEM test, which is a standardized test that looks at saccadic eye movements and it looks at how quickly and efficiently can you move your eyes in a rhythmic manner and not lose your place. One of the most common complaints we get from concussion patients are, I, I'm struggling with my reading, I can't track. I, I try to read, I lose my place. And interesting enough, we also hear the same complaint from children who are labeled with what's called NVLD, nonverbal learning disability, which is basically means when they do anything visual, they get into trouble. So if they listen to the teacher, they're fine. If they tell you what they did for the weekend, they're fine. But as soon as they have to read or do written output, um, they kind of fall apart from an academic standpoint. So a DEM test can be a very simple test, a developmental eye movement test, and or the King Devick, and, and I know the King Devick has been used extensively at the Mayo Clinic, for example. So it's not exactly a unused test; it's pretty widespread used. Um, the other thing that we like to use is, which really looks at eye movements, also is a Visigraph, which is a it's a goggle, and 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 you put it on. There's four infrared cameras on the inside of the goggle. The person reads material, and the cameras actually record. What the, pers- what the person's eyes are doing on the page. So you can see their eye movements in real time, which is really revealing because it, it, it's very hard to, for example, in the concussion world, how do we know if somebody's truly concussed? Are they faking it or are they concussed? It's very hard to fake eye movements. It's very hard to fake how you read, especially if it's in your head, right? So that's one test. I would say the other test that we tend to use a lot is our tests of ocular motor function. So for example, just basic convergence. I'm moving my eyes towards my nose. It's, it's very interesting that if you understand how to use your periphery, you can greatly increase your control of your eyes. And one of the biggest things in concussion is patients basically lose the ability to control their eyes. People think it's a muscle problem, but if, if somebody, for example, has a convergence insufficiency, which is very common post-concussion, if I close one eye and I get the patient to look in every position... I can move my eye in every position monocularly. There's no restrictions. If I then get that patient to go binocular, they often have a trouble. They have trouble pulling both eyes in together. So my number one question is, how is that a muscle problem? If they can do it monocularly, but they can't do it binocularly, that can't be a muscle problem. It's got to be a brain issue. The brain doesn't understand how to control the system. So I'm going to use the camera to kind of demonstrate this. But if I if I look at my finger right now, I see. I see one of my finger, and I see two of the camera in the background, okay? If I bring my finger more towards my nose, those two cameras get further apart. If I move back here, the two cameras get closer together. This is where it gets really cool. If I take away my finger, I can keep the two cameras as double. If I know how to control my periphery, I can make the two cameras go really far apart, I can make the two tripods touch, I can make the edge of the camera touch, I can make them double again, look in the middle, I can look at the left camera, and I can make one eye move, And I can hold it in a converged position, bring it back. Now the two cameras are side by side. I look at the other camera and I can make the other eye move over here and then I can bring it back. So my question is in that entire process, who is in control of my vision? My brain. There's nothing to do with muscles, right? So the fallacy that we think that a concussion is a muscle issue when somebody can't team their eyes together it's actually the brain's inability to control the visual system. And I think that's where you've got to go back to neuroanatomy and realize that 40%, percent—and uh, that's a Feldman and Van Essen paper from 1991 published in Cerebral Cortex. At least 40% of the primate brain is primarily visual machinery. That is a massive proportion of our brain, uh, and, and it's bigger than any other area. So I think vision is a really key area. So I, I think the test that personally I, I really like is saccades, convergence, and another one would be vergence facility, which is my ability to move my eyes in and out quickly without kind of getting stuck. So that's, that's probably the, the best test I, I can think of. Although there's probably 50 or 60 tests in, in general that I could talk about. I think those are, would probably be the top three.
0: You said the vision system except 40% of the brain. Is yeah. that what makes it so prone to dysfunction?
1: I think so. And, and the analogy I try to use is if you have a TV, for example, and let's just say you've got vision, vestibular, and proprioception. And you've got three cables going into your TV and your TV stops working or it starts to crackle and not work properly. And you've got a big honking cable attached to your TV and you've got two small cables. Which cable are you looking at first?
0: The big one. You're looking at
1: the big one, right? Now, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a problem in the two smaller ones, but I'm looking at the big one really, really carefully. And and I think because the visual system is so dominant, we have to be very, very careful to assess it in detail and not just assume, well, the patient sees 20-20, therefore they're fine. There are about 15 to 16 other visual skills that are required other than 20-20 for somebody to be able to function properly. For example, when I read, I have to converge and I have to move my eyes from side to side while I'm converged. That is nothing to do with me staring at 20 feet, reading a letter. I also think that there's various things out there that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that vision is the dominant sense. And I know I'm biased. I'm an eye doctor and people say, well, you're biased. You would say that. But let me talk about two illusions that I think are very, very strong that prove this. The first is called the McGurk effect. Go on to Google, type in M-C-G-U-R-K, and what the McGurk effect is, is you look at somebody saying the word ba, and you see their lips going like a B. You hear ba, right? If you keep playing the same clip, so it keeps saying ba, ba, ba all the time, but you change the person's face to go, so it looks like they're saying fa, you will actually hear the ba change to a fa even though all you're hearing is Ba all the time. So, so what you see will directly influence what you believe you're hearing. But if you close your eyes all the time, all you'll ever hear is Ba. So there's actually a clip. If you go online and type in the McGurk effect, uh, there's a professor from Southern California who's got a wonderful clip on that. So basically, when vision and auditory collide, the brain believes vision every time. The other thing that I think is really cool to point out is if you ever go to... Niagara Falls, and you go to Ripley's, believe it or not, in Niagara Falls, there's a really cool, uh, not the one on the top of the hill, the one on the bottom of the hill, but there's there's a really cool visual illusion at the end of that whole thing, and it's basically a plank that you walk across, which is perfectly stable, and it's kind of dark, but there's lights on the wall, but the lights are rotating, kind of like a big drum, right? So when you walk through that area, even if you stand still, so when I'm standing still, my vestibular system is not working. My vestibular is only if I'm accelerating or decelerating or moving my head. So I'm perfectly stable. If I close my eyes, I've got no problem. If you open your eyes and your periphery is moving, your whole body will veer to that side, right? So what does that mean? That means that the visual system, when it's put up against vestibular and proprioception, the brain will believe the visual system. And that makes sense. If I've got three cables, you know, a big thick cable and two small cables, I'm gonna believe the information coming from the big cable, even if that information's incorrect. And I think that's why it's so important that we delve into the visual system in detail in post-concussion and visually related learning disabilities, especially reading and written output. Those are the ones that are majorly hit. And, you know, there, there can be other issues like fine motor integration in reading in, in learning disabilities. There can be phonetic problems. Maybe you need to bring a speech path in, you need to bring, an o, bring in an OT. But I would say more often than not, in kids that have reading-based issues, they typically have a fairly high degree of ocular motor dysfunction. And, and, and in concussion populations, I would say it's, it's 80 to 90% plus of these patients. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of them are light-sensitive. They can't handle peripheral motion in crowds. They have trouble with computer screens. If you say to most concussion patients, how do you feel when you scroll on a computer how does that scrolling on the screen make you feel? They will go, oh, it makes me feel terrible, I hate to look at it. So, so I think understanding the anatomy and understanding that the reason why it's so important to look at vision is because it is a dominant sense. And, and I've, I've spent enough time with sports medicine and PT and OT and chiros, and a lot of them will do a test where they'll say, stand up on one leg and now close your eyes. And then the patient will lose their balance and they'll say, oh, that's because there's vestibular dysfunction. I would kind of come back at them and say, well, when the patient closes their eyes, you've removed their vision. So if they lost balance when you remove their vision, what are they using to maintain balance? Primarily their visual system. So yes, you still want to look at vestibular and you want to look at proprioception because, for example, uh, I had a patient this morning who was a diabetic and we were doing an initial concussion consult on her and she's got peripheral neuropathies in her feet. So her proprioception is not going to be as good because she's getting some numbness in her feet. That is absolutely a factor in her balance but she also had double vision out to 25 centimeters, which I'm pretty sure is a factor in her balance too. So, so I think looking at vision as a dominant sense, I think is really important. Not negating the need to look at the other senses, but I think making sure that vision is, is kind of given the respect that it deserves as a sense because it really is one of our most dominant senses.
0: Do you ever see balance go the opposite way, where if someone with a visual issue closes their eyes and their balance improves?
1: I would say yes. Actually there's one patient that we had where the patient had a visual midline shift, which basically means if both of my eyes are working properly, my visual midline should be here. Typically our 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 visual midline should be over our sternum. So if I'm standing up and if, if I perceive my center is here, I should be balanced when I'm standing up, right? If I develop a visual issue and the brain starts paying a lot more attention to one eye than the other, what's gonna happen is that visual midline is gonna get pulled towards the dominant eye. And what's typically gonna happen is the patient will then use this as their reference midline, and the brain knows, well, this should be over my sternum, so now I'm gonna adjust my gait like this. So you'll often see the patient kind of off a little bit. And what I find is is when a patient has a visual midline shift, when they close their eyes, you will often see their, their gait kind of improving because they're getting rid of the confounding signal between the vision and the vestibular. Uh, and that, so you do see that sometimes, but obviously it's not practical to say to a patient these go through your whole life with your eyes closed uh, and and your balance will be better so so I think it's 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 it certainly does help from a diagnostic standpoint but I would say most patients when you remove vision most of us who are not concussed and don't have any injuries if we stand up on one leg and then we close our eyes most of us would say that's more challenging because you you're now purely reliant on your vestibular and your proprioception and then of course if you come along and say to the patient now I want you to stand on a pillow so you're not getting any proprioception you're purely relying on your vestibular it's more difficult again. So I think every sense, I always think of a three-legged stool. You know, if you take away one leg on the stool, the stool's gonna fall. So I think vision, vestibular, and proprioception, they're all important, but we always have to keep in mind, vision can trick the other two. So if the visual system is dysfunctional, you know, one of my colleagues um, who does a lot of diagnostic work for us from a vestibular standpoint, she loves the phrase, the eyes are the liars. And the reason why, and the first time she said that to me, I kind of got offended. I'm like, what do you mean the eyes are the liars? And, and she said, well, if the eyes are dysfunctional, they give false results on the other stuff. So you're kind of leading us down a pathway where we think it's vestibular dysfunction, but we look at the inner ear, the inner ear is not pooched. We do vestibular testing, the vestibular system comes up okay, but it looks and it, and it walks and it quacks like a vestibular problem. So all the testing will suggest a vestibular issue, the symptomatology will sound like a vestibular issue, but none of the vestibular testing is giving a clear-cut vestibular diagnosis. And those are the cases where vision is probably murking the waters because how do we ultimately assess the vestibular system? We can't assess it directly, correct? Mm-hmm. We can't, we can't uh, open up the petrous bone and peek inside at the vestibular system because it's, it's enclosed by a very hard bone. So if we can't assess the system directly, how do we assess the vestibular system? We look at eye movements. We look at nystagmus. We look at, so, oh, so I'm assessing the vestibular system. I can't assess it directly, but I can assess it indirectly by looking at eye movements. Ah, but what if there's a problem with the visual system superimposed on what I'm looking at? I, I think that's when it starts getting pretty interesting from a diagnostic standpoint.
0: Uh, let's go back to the childhood learning issues. Yep. Can you just give us an overview of that and what you generally see in the clinic?
1: Sure. If we go back in time, I think my original interest in binocular vision really did stem from the learning difficulty side. And I, I hate using the term learning disability because when you say to a kid, you've got a disability, does that make them feel good? Probably not. And, and, and they usually don't think they can get better because now they've got a label. So I, I always use the term learning difficulty. There's something getting in the way of the learning. If we can figure out what that is, and we can't always do, do, do that with everybody, but if we can figure out what that is and remove the barrier, the learning should occur. So my, myself and uh, Dr. Simpson, uh, Trefford Simpson at the, at the University of Waterloo, I would say, I think it was uh, 2013, so probably about three or four years ago, we looked at 100 children. So we took 50 control cases. Uh, these are between the age of six and 16, and we took 50 kids with an IEP. So that's an individualized educational plan, which is basically the school saying, little Johnny can't read, so we're going to give him a laptop to read him. So now he's fixed. And we're like, well, no, he's not fixed because he, he still can't read. So we took about 50 of these IEP cases that, were, that, that had had auditory things ruled out and speech things were ruled out. So it was, it was primarily, they're not reading, but we don't know why. And we published a paper in Grace Archives of Clinical and Experimental Ophthalmology so it was published in a medical journal, and what we showed was 14 out of the 15 ocular motor indexes were significantly different, significantly reduced in the IEP group versus the control group. And if you took uh, two or three of them, I think it ended up being two, if you took Virgin's facility, so how quickly I can move my eyes in and out, and symptom scores, and you just took those two metrics, you could predict with a 92% accuracy, randomly, if you randomly picked one person out of 100, which group they were from. And if you picked any three metrics you could not only determine if they were an iep or a control patient you could determine with a fairly high degree of accuracy what their reading performance was and we recorded the reading using the visograph so we actually used an infrared tracking system so the nice thing was that we determined the reading level of the child ob- fairly objectively it wasn't something that we influenced right that paper came out and then people started to realize that oh okay ocular motor function is playing a role in learning difficulties especially when they're reading based and and my motivation for pursuing that paper, I'm going to bring it back to a lecture and, and won't name names, but I, I attended a lecture and I remember listening to an eye doctor talking about visual dysfunction. And, and the statement that he made kind of kind kind of annoyed me. He said, vision has nothing to do with the ability to read. That was a statement. And I kind of scratched my head and I thought, well, if I close my eyes, it doesn't really happen, does it? So vision is obviously involved in reading. I, I would like to think and I would like to hope what he meant was visual acuity is nothing to do with the ability to read. So I can have somebody who's a very good reader who can see 2020, I can have somebody who's a very bad reader who can see 2020. That I would agree with. But vision to me encompasses not just visual acuity but the other 15 or so visual skills that are involved. And if we published a paper in a in a medical ophthalmology journal proving that there is actually a significant difference in general in the binocularity and visual status between IEP kids and control kids, it kind of flies in the face of that type of statement. So, so I think, and the fact that the CITT study, the um, the Convergence Insufficiency Treatment Trial, which was published in 2008, so it's a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized, multi-centered trial funded by the NIH, optometry and ophthalmology co-authored, so we're actually on the same page with this, they're saying that convergence insufficiency is highly treatable if it's done the proper way. So we have a paper showing that there's a correlation between poor ocular motor dysfunction and reading difficulties, and we also have a separate NIH trial showing that certainly one major component of these binocular vision issues called convergence insufficiency can be treated with a high degree of success, that's a motivator to try to say, okay, is there something that we can do for these kids? Because I'm not sure if you're aware, but the rate of IEPs in Ontario schools is scary. I mean, we're getting about the paper that we looked at, we reviewed, I think it was three or four school boards, and the average rate of IEPs is about 1 to 2 in 10. So that means in our general school system, there's a statement that 10 to 20% of our children have learning difficulties. That's a really high number. And and I think if if, if you look in the literature on the prevalence of true learning disabilities based on developmental issues, like if somebody has a true developmental delay, it's it's a lot lower number than that. So there's, there's some disconnect going on there. So I think that was how I got into... Doing vision therapy was primarily for learning difficulties. And then over time, we started to realize that, you know, the kids that didn't have any developmental factors, um, like they weren't born preemie, they weren't low birth weight, a lot of them had histories of pediatric concussions. So we were kind of sitting back here going, are we really dealing with a learning difficulty case, or is this just a pediatric concussion? So I think that's kind of where we've started to drift back into the concussion. But I really think there is a continuum between the two. I think we've got to be really careful about assuming they're separate. For example, this, uh, this week we just published a paper in Vision Development and re- Rehabilitation with the University of Toronto with the sports medicine folks. We tested 250 uh, varsity athletes at baseline, and we found depending on what you looked at, depending on what binocular vision dysfunction ca- um, section that you looked at, anywhere between 12 to 18% of the supposedly healthy athletes at baseline are failing ocular motor testing at baseline. So you could say, you know, 1 in 10 to 1 in 5, potentially we say one in five, one in five athletes playing sports do not have a very well-functioning binocular vision system. So if they then go on to have a concussion, it probably explains why you often see different patterns of recovery in two people that have had a very similar injury, very similar sport, yet they have the injury and they both recover completely differently. So I think based on, obviously when I deal with a patient who's had a concussion, you're not just dealing with the concussion, you're dealing with the concussion plus all the pre-existing history so to go back to your question about what do we tend to see when the when when the patients come in if it's a if it's a pediatric case and it's a learning difficulty case we often hear the child is struggling majorly with reading there's an iep in place at school the other thing that's often brought up is is an overlap between adhd and binocular vision symptoms and and that's really something that we tend to bring up a lot and say you know We've got to be careful because it could be one, it could be the other, but we do know that five out of the nine symptoms of ADHD overlap with the symptoms of binocular vision dysfunction. So and I think the incidences of binocular vision dysfunction in the ADHD population is 15.9% compared to two to 3% in the general population. So we've got to be careful about not assuming a child is inattentive and putting them on a medication incorrectly rather than saying, well, wait a minute, maybe this kid can't control their eyes properly and they're having trouble attending because of the binocular vision issue. So you can't really rule out one unless you test for the other.
0: Are these type of things tested in a standard eye exam? I,
1: I think that's, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, when you look at pediatric cases, for example, and, and what OHIP, OHIP will basically cover a, a routine eye exam. So checking you for a prescription, checking you for eye disease. Basic tests of binocular function. So, they will do a cover test, a near point of convergence, depth perception testing, for example. But really, a routine eye exam is perfectly fine for a routine case. But as soon as you get a learning difficulty case or a concussion case, really it's a different type of case. And you still have to do all that stuff, but there's a lot of stuff you have to do in addition to that. So, you would have to do saccadic eye movement testing. You would have to do fixation disparity testing. You would have to do Virgins facility testing, you'd have to do virgins range testing, you might even have to do a Hess Lancaster plot, which is really a very complicated way of looking at how the eyes are aligned. So, I, I think it's there's a point where the routine tests stop and then these more in depth tests start. And I think that's that's where we kind of come in, where we're trying to be we're essentially trying to be an adjunct to the optometrist's office. So, we, we don't do any routine eye care, we don't dispense glasses, so we're not a traditional optometry practice. But if a colleague refers to us, and, and we find that there's a prescription, the patient needs a prism, or they need some therapy, we'll typically send a report back to the optometrist, who's referred it, and we'll typically send the prescription back to them, or the, the patient can take that wherever they want by law. But we will say, you know, we're here to basically act as a tertiary service. We're here to fix a problem, does not interfere with your routine eye care with your optometrist. And ideally, we want to see a two-way communication going on with the optometrist. And typically, if we have a patient that doesn't have a routine optometrist, once we finish our therapy, we'll typically try to find them a routine optometrist that they can continue their care with. But there are different tests. I would say there is some overlap, but it's really important that the more in-depth testing get done. And that was really the conclusion of the paper that we published in Grace in the the journal in 2013. And we basically said, look, all these tests that we looked at in this paper are not traditionally done as part of a routine eye exam. So if the message to the practitioners was, you know, if you have a patient in your chair, whether it's a pediatric or an adult patient, if they have a learning issue or they have a history of a concussion and they're having problems, even if all your testing seems like it's fairly normal, you probably would be serving your patient best by referring them out to have these tests done to make sure there's not other stuff going on. And I think that's, that's where, you know, the, the back and forth. And I would say a good 5 a good to 10% of the patients that come to our clinic are referred to by optometrists. So they, they clearly understand what we do. They may not offer the service in their in their clinic, but they understand that it's something that their patients will need and, and it it augments their care in their office. And I think that's important. But the other ninety percent of patients that come to our office, I mean, they come from sports medicine, educators, tutors, speech paths, occupational therapists. So we've we really kind of get referrals from I would say optometries, maybe five to ten percent of our referrals, but we're we're trying to let everybody know what we do because it's a very I think vision therapy is a very challenging area to practice in because you literally have to eat, breathe, and drink this stuff to do it well, in my opinion, because we're constantly publishing papers and we're learning new stuff as we go. And I I can't imagine doing this level of vision therapy rehab in addition to trying to run a routine clinic. It it would be very difficult to do.
0: So do you think that the amount of children with learning difficulties is... Slowly getting this help with vision therapy, or is it still an understated area? Okay, you um, said you get a lot of referrals now. Do you think it's yeah. becoming more widely accepted? I
1: think I think the awareness is going up, and and you know part of the and you can make the same conclusion with concussions as learning difficulties, and and I think there's always a question of you know is this stuff getting more common, or has it always been common and we're just more aware of it and, and that it's getting treated, and and I think it's it's that's a really good question, and and I would like to hope that we are uncovering more of these issues because I think in most of us think back to our childhood. I mean, I can think of at least three people in my, in my primary school class that knowing what I know now, I'm like, they definitely need a vision therapy. There was no doubt about it. So I don't think that these issues are getting any more prevalent. I think we're getting better at recognizing them and treating them. I do, however, think there's a lot of room for improvement. I mean, we've gotten, we regularly get phone calls from school boards asking, you know, can you come in and do a lecture for a PA day for our teachers or, you know, I got a phone call probably two or three months ago from Ohio State. Um, So they have an optometry school there. So they invited me down there to do a two-day course with their optometrists to try to get them more aware of what's going on. So And there's there's 20, I believe now 25 optometry schools in North America. There's 23 in the U.S. and two in Canada, one in Montreal, one at the University of Waterloo. And I think the awareness is increasing. But I think the reason why it's – vision therapy has definitely been on an upswing in the last two or three years, especially – and I think it's because the research is starting to catch up with what we already knew. So practitioners in this area have known for years vision therapy works. We know it works. We see it in our clinics all the time. However, it's it it you don't have a double-blind placebo-controlled trial for everything. And, that, and the same thing goes for medicine. Medicine does a lot of stuff off-label, and it's perfectly accepted. You know, you don't need a double-blind placebo-controlled trial to know to look both ways before you cross the road. That's considered common sense. And people may think that sounds facetious, but... I also think, you know, doubting that my eyes' ability to pull inwards, if I have an inability to do that, that should impact on my reading. To me, that's common sense. If, if you can't pull your eyes in properly, it's going to affect your reading. There may be other factors. So I think, I think it's, it's – it's, the research is catching up. So I think I think the vision therapy is definitely on the crest of a rising wave. And, you know, organizations like COVD, the College of Optometrists and Vision Development, which is in the States, they are a board-certifying body in the US, so there's currently no formal board certification in Canada, but in the US there is a process which I've been through. And, and they, their mission statement is to make doctors and the public more aware of this area, which I, I fully applaud. And, and I think initiatives like that are really helping because they, they also have this um, thing called the Tour de, the Tour of Optometry, so they actually have people from COVD going to the optometry schools, doing lectures to the optometry schools to make sure they understand this area. And, and the really cool part is that the research and the science is catching up, which I'd like to think our clinic is contributing to by publishing the papers that we publish.
0: Do you think there should be some sort of baseline testing outside of standard eye exam for kids?
1: I think that's that's a good question. I personally think doing baseline testing on everybody is probably going to reveal more false positives. I'm not a big fan of doing mass screening on people because really screening, is is really very effective when it's done in a very high-risk population. That's the whole point of screening. So if you go out there and you say, I'm going to screen everybody for a certain disease, regardless of age, gender, risk factors, history, you're probably going to end up getting a lot more false positives. So people who are diagnosed as having a problem who don't actually have a problem. I think where binocular vision or, or any type of baseline testing or, or screening is more effective is when you take a high-risk population and you apply it chances are when you get a positive, it's going to be a true positive rather than a false one. So for example, I firmly believe that if you're dealing with a child who has learning issues or a history of concussion, that more than a screening, I think a full ocular motor assessment should be done. But I think if you have kids that are playing sports, for example, most sports, hockey, soccer, um, lacrosse, these sports have risks of concussions. So to me, it, it is common sense to have baseline data in these people. And I think there's been some debate out there about whether, you know, is baseline testing a waste of time? I, I, I think it is a waste of time if it's poor testing and it's done on the general population. But I think it's very, very useful if it's done on a targeted population that are at a higher risk because they play a certain sport. And also the proper tests are done. That's the other thing. Um, you know, if, if you're just doing a questionnaire and no other test, that's not really a good baseline test. But if I look at cicades, virgins facility, visual memory, and a questionnaire, that's a very good screening test. And, and I can tell you when I deal with concussions in the clinic here, and I deal with the patient after they've had the injury, I would love to have had their baseline testing before the injury to know, have they changed from where they were before? Because for example, the, uh, the paper that we published this week is stating that potentially one in five athletes have a pre-existing problem. Now I'm sure the insurance company would love to hear that because, oh, pre-existing issue. But the reality is n- very few of us would score 10 out of 10 on every single test that we have in the clinic. If I just randomly plucked a person off the street, put them through our testing battery, none of us are perfect. But the question is, before the injury, was I good enough to function in whatever occupation I was in? And then after the injury, I'm not. So what changed? It's very hard for us to determine that if we don't know what the patient was before the injury. I'm actually personally a little bit shocked that insurance companies haven't picked up on this. Because if, 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 if you go and get life insurance, what happens? Somebody comes along, they look at your blood work, they measure your blood pressure, they do all those testing. Nobody looks at your balance. Nobody looks at your visual function. Nobody looks at your vestibular function. Yet those three things are very key to your balance and your coordination in space. And if they're off, you're going to be much higher risk for having an accident. So I would actually say having baseline testing on higher risk populations makes sense. Doing baseline testing on everybody randomly, you're probably going to get more false positives. So I would say in general, I'm in favor of it, but with a caveat.
0: Are there any visible indications that can lead you to believe that Someone might have an eye issue and should get tested?
1: That is an excellent question because I would say most of the time, looking at somebody with a binocular vision issue, unless they have a strabismus where the eyes turned, and that's a very obvious type of binocular vision function, you can see that just by looking at them one eye's in or one eye's out. But I would say most binocular vision dysfunction, when you look at the person, their eyes look okay. That's the reason why it's so easy to miss. And that's the reason why parents will often say, Well, I didn't think my child had a lazy eye in one eye. Um, you know, they're 2,400 in one eye in 2020, but the eyes look straight. And, I, and I've thrown that out there on purpose because I would really like for society to change the terminology lazy eye. If you injured your leg and somebody said, well, your leg's just lazy, then that'd be kind of offensive, right? Like, well, it's not, it's not working, right? So it's, a, it's an underdeveloped eye or, it is a, or it's, it's, a, it's a dysfunctional eye. It's something that needs treatment, right? It's not something that's lazy. So if you're a poor kid and you're sitting there and somebody tells you you got a lazy eye, you kind of feel like, geez, I should, I, I should, I should try harder. But I think in, in general, most binocular vision issues are not visible. And that's why it's really important that we pay attention to how the eyes are actually functioning. If somebody can't track properly on a page, how do you know that by looking at their eyes? The answer is you don't. So you've got to test them and ask them questions. That's why it's, it's, it's all well and good asking a 12-year-old about their vision or a 10-year-old. But a 6-year-old who's got a visual problem, if you think about it, if, they, if they're seeing abnormally, if their tracking is off and their vision is off, they've never known any different. Even though if you and I lived in their visual world for a day, we'd, we'd wonder, how are you coping with this? To them, that's their normal reference. So if their eyes look fine, and even though their visual system is is markedly abnormal, but they have no normal reference, do you think that kid's going to complain to the parent? No, because that's, that's their normal. So I think we've got to be really careful about knowing that, in general, you can't tell just by looking at the patient. And if it's a younger child, we have to be cognizant of the fact that they may still have markedly abnormal vision, but because they have no normal reference, they're probably not even gonna complain about it. So we've gotta be really careful about how we test those kids.
0: How young do you start to treat kids?
1: I would say you can treat a kid, depending on what you do, how you define treatment, I would say if, if the applications of lenses, glasses, refractive error, correction, I would say you can start treating somebody as young as a year old or a year and a half. I mean, if somebody's got a really high plus prescription, generally we wait until, about a year, because typically by a year, it's called emetropization, but all of us are born without eye teaming. If you look at a newborn baby on day one, it's kind of scary to watch. I mean, the the vestibular system, the inner ear, is fully developed at 48 days gestation. I find that fascinating. So not even two months in the womb, and the baby's vestibular system is fully developed. When that baby's born, if you look at their eyes, the eyes will kind of move, and you'll often see one eye moving independently of the other. You know, not 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 a huge amount, but you can certainly tell that they're not conjugate. Typically, by about three months, when that infant's able to roll over onto their stomach and lift their head up independently, so when the neck muscles engage, the eyes tend to lock in a line. So that four-month post-birth time is really important for the infant. So when we see infants, usually around four to six months. We're looking to see if they have convergence. And that's a very simple test. You could dangle some keys and move it towards the infant, and you want to make sure that their eyes are able to converge on the target because if that kid has convergence, I can guarantee you they have cortical fusion to some degree, right? We typically wouldn't jump in and start prescribing lenses if there's a problem until at least a year old, um, maybe 18 months if it's a very high refractive error. In terms of therapy, obviously therapy is a little bit different. You have to be able to interact with the child. I would say probably about five or six is a good start, starting point for those kids, but it depends. We, we've had five-year-olds who are very interactive. Uh, we've treated one four-year-old who was very interactive, who did quite, quite well in therapy. But it, it depends to some extent on the age of the child. But I think it's also really important to understand how the visual system develops to know, you know a lot of people don't realize that up to four months, it's, it's normal for a child to have uncoordinated eyes. But it's also important to know that by one, you know, by certainly by a year old, I mean, that kid should not have any hint of any eye turns or anything like that. I think it's being aware of of what you can do at the time because, you know, the thing that defines optometry is the use of lenses and prisms. Ophthalmic lenses is what we do. It's a it's a restricted act and we we can prescribe them and you use them from therapy. That's really what differentiates us. And we use a lot of lenses and prisms in therapy. But we can also prescribe them as compensation devices if somebody's long sighted. So there's one really neat exercise, actually, I'll just take an aside here to, to talk about one neat exercise that I say to parents. If a, if a mother comes to me and says, my child was born six weeks early, I have an eye turn. My child, I think, I'm worried about them because they might end up with the same thing I have. And they're, let's just say they come to you and the infant's six months old. One very simple exercise you can give that mom is, I want you to put your infant on your lap, have the, have the parents sit on a stool or something that can rotate from side to side, put an iPad on, something colorful that will get the kid's attention, and then just move from side to side so the kid's essentially doing this. And what you're doing is you're gently um, activating the vestibular, and the eyes are staying on the target, and the patient's basically doing this. There's a really wonderful saying called nerves that fire together, wire together. So if you do that with the infant, you're, you're basically teaching the vestibular system to better align the visual system. So you're using the more primitive system, the one that developed a 48 days gestation, you're using that system to tell the eyes what to do. And that very simple exercise, doing that for 10 or 15 minutes a day, with which parents can do very easily with high risk infants, like that type of exercise. So in theory, that's a vision therapy exercise. How old is the infant? Six months. So there, there, there's some techniques that you can do with these parents that I would fully encourage any optometrist to say that to a parent who has a kid coming in with developmental risk factors, such as, I think it's if you're preemie earlier than three weeks, If your birth weight was less than 2,500 grams or five pounds five ounces, or you had significant oxygen deprivation at birth, so if the child had cord wrapped around their neck, had to be resuscitated, those three risk factors are the highest risk factors for infantile esotropia, which is that inward turn that a kid can develop by a year or two old, right? So depending on what you mean by therapy, we could go as early as six months, I guess. Okay.
0: You talked about the visual system developing along with neck stability in infants. Do you think that the link between concussion and neck issues has any impact on that visual system as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it's key. This is something that, from a research standpoint, we're very interested in. Again, going back to the development that I just talked about, if my vestibular system develops a 48 days gestation, I'm born without eye teaming, my eyes don't team, at three months old, I'm able to roll over onto my stomach as an infant and lift my head up. What did I have to do to lift my head up? I had to engage my neck muscles. I had to engage my core muscles. And isn't it funny that within two to four weeks of me being able to lift my head, my eyes start to team together? I really don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's bigger muscles helping to control smaller muscles. If, if I look at something and something appears out here, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this. So when the eyes move by a certain amount it activates the sternoclastide muscle you've got the suboccipital muscles on the back of the neck so those muscles are contracting to work with the eye teaming system so it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of crosstalk between the two systems um, i would argue and again i'm not a neck and vestibular person i'm an eye person but i would argue that it is it is physically impossible to have a concussion without neck involvement even if there's no physical hit if you get a whiplash injury it's not necessarily a, a contracoup. You don't necessarily have the hit. Neck is basically our shock absorber, right? It's, it, that, that's what it's designed to do. When muscle tends to be injured, what does it tend to do? It tends to contract, right? It tends to become less flexible. A lot of our concussion patients, if they have an accommodative problem, so they can't focus from distance to near very quickly in one eye, what I find fascinating is that if it's their left eye that's pooched from a focusing standpoint, it tends to be the left side of the neck that's also an issue. So when you get that person to, to see how far they can rotate this way versus this way, you'll find a lot more issues on the same side as the side of the eye that's affected. I personally don't think that's a coincidence. And we've seen that a lot at the University of Toronto. That's a sports medicine clinic. So, so we, are, we are strongly suspicious that, yes, there is brain injury. So when I have a contract injury, the brain sloshes back and forth, and you get that typical damage to the brain, which if I hit the front of my brain, that's my frontal lobe, my thinking center. The back of the brain, guess where the visual cortex is? So again, a big portion of my brain is visual machinery, but I'm also on a contrecoup injury, potentially injuring the back. But I think we we absolutely should not be negating the influence of the neck. It's a huge component to the point where if we do a consult on a concussion patient and their neck is bad enough, I will tell them, I I ain't touching your visual system until you get your neck dealt with because anything that happens, if they can do work on the neck and get your neck more stable, it's going to make my vision therapy go twice as quick. So I I really feel that the rehab professionals like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, um, chiropractic, all these rehab professionals, they really need to appreciate the importance of the visual system, but also conversely, we need to appreciate the importance of the neck and how it relates to my overall function and the vestibular folks. Because I I really think to talk about any one entity like it's the be-all and end-all is really a fallacy. It's a it's a Rubik's cube for every and every different patient. Every patient is different. Some patients may have a larger vector of visual damage. Some may have a larger vector of vestibular. Some may have a larger vector of neck damage, and and where I see concussion management going, ultimately is collaborative care teams. But so far, and I'm quite happy to be corrected on this by anybody. But so far, you know, the neck and the vestibular seem to be fairly well represented in those teams. Vision therapy done by an optometrist who really knows what they're doing, seems to be very underrepresented. And and, and from, my spec, from my perspective, from what I see in the clinic, uh, professions like neurology, neuro-ophthalmology, and ophthalmology, I mean, they're, they're, they're MDs, obviously. They're, their area is acute care. They're used to, they're very good at dealing with retinal detachments, brain tumors, cataracts, that type of thing. But ultimately, they're surgeons. Per, they're, they're not really a rehab profession. And, and whilst they're absolutely key in terms of triage, they're not necessarily doing the rehab themselves. And I think that's why people like uh, Eric Singman, so he's an MD, PhD at Johns Hopkins. He's the chief of neuro-ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins. We collaborate with him a lot. And, and I think he, he, he totally gets it. He's at the point where he's the quarterback and he's triaging the care. And, and I think that's where uh, neurology, neuro-ophthalmology comes into play, where they're essentially the quarterbacks for the visual system. But the reality is it's usually not a surgical problem it's it's not something you can fix with a pill it's something you have to fix with rehab so it's kind of like saying i think that the skills of an orthopedic surgeon and the skills of a physiotherapist are exactly the same of course that's nonsense they're not they're both in the same wheelhouse it's it's the same church but a different pew and i think making sure that these people understand what each other does i I think is really really key and that's something that we've come across at the university of toronto too where they fully the sports medicine department there fully understand that vision therapy rehab is not the same as having a dilated retinal exam done to look for glaucoma, for example. They're, they're really different wheelhouses, um, both important but different.
0: Going along with the link between the visual system and neck stability, as a physiotherapist, a lot of times I see patients who come in and they just have a lot of muscle guarding in their neck. There doesn't yep. really seem to be some big issue. They're just always sore and tight yep. in their neck. Do you think it's plausible that those people might have some sort of vision issue?
1: I think it's it's a chicken and egg discussion, really. It's a, that's an excellent question because what we find is two things can happen. The neck is the primary injury source, and the muscles contract and the patient's stuck in a certain position or they have restrictions or the muscles tight and the physiotherapist is going in there trying to trying to help, trying to get it loose, trying to increase the range of extension, that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is if I've developed a binocular vision problem, and let's just say I'm intermittently seeing double and there's six extraocular muscles wrapped around each eyeball, right? Uh, Two are oblique muscles at at oblique angles. So it's very easy. I think it's cranial nerve six, four, and three. You've got your inferior rectus, superior rectus, medial rectus, lateral rectus, superior oblique, inferior oblique, times two for each eye, plus you've got the internal muscles in each eye. So you've essentially got 14 muscles trying to coordinate at the same time. If I develop an imbalance in my ocular motor system and I start intermittently seeing double, And I figure out as a patient, huh, that's weird. If I hold my head like this, I don't see double as much. And a lot of patients figure that out very early on. They'll say, yeah, you know, if I go like this, it's really, my eyes feel strained and sometimes I go double. You know, if I hold my head like this, it's a lot more comfortable. So over time, what's gonna happen is they're gonna drift into that position. And what's gonna happen to the neck muscles if I keep my head in this position all the time, eventually this muscle's gonna start to clamp down, it's gonna start to contract. This muscle may or may not because it's it's on the other side getting stretched. So a visual issue can lead to a neck muscle issue or a primary neck muscle injury can also lead to a secondary eye problem. So that's kind of what I mean. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, chicken and egg. And my answer is in a chicken and egg scenario, you look at both. The cynic in me says treat one and see what happens, (laughs) right? I mean, if, if you treat the neck and the patient doesn't get better, that's probably telling you there's visual involvement. So if as a physiotherapist you've been seeing the patient for six months and they're not really getting anywhere, that's probably telling you something. And, and I would say the same thing the other way around from a vision standpoint. If I'm treating a patient from a vision and, and I know that type of case should improve very, very quickly, but this is improving very, very slowly and it's like pulling teeth, I'll usually put a pause on the therapy, send out for a PT assessment because I think the neck is probably a bigger deal. The best thing that was ever said to me by one of my mentors years back, the difference between a good practitioner and an excellent practitioner is the latter knows when to get somebody else involved. And I think that's probably the best way i can put
0: that on that note are there any red flags that healthcare providers should be aware of um, red
1: flags in terms of pathology or mm-hmm. red flag yeah so i think that that's a very good point because when we're dealing with concussion cases we also have to realize sometimes you can get a patient coming to you who's presenting as a concussion case but really it's a there's a disease process going on so let me give an example this is actually a real patient that we saw we had a patient a couple of years ago who had been diagnosed with a with a with a um, with an amblyopic eye or a lazy eye from from her young years, and she was probably in her 60s. And she came to us and said, "I read Sue Barry's book, Fixing My Gaze, and in that book it talks about vision therapy. And she was in her early 40s when she had that done, her mid 40s. And I'd like to see if I can do some vision therapy to improve my to improve my weak eye." and halfway through the conversation, she brought up, she said, yeah, you know, my eye's always been a little bit turned in, but I've noticed over the last six months, my eye's kind of gone in a little bit more, right? Now, she's never going to see double because she's suppressing one eye, it's long-standing. Um, however, I've always been taught that if you see an inward deviation, so if the eyes start to go ease or inward, and it happens after about the age of eight or nine years old, and it's new, it's pathology until you can otherwise prove it. Because the abducens nerve, cranial nerve six, which innervates the lateral rectus and pulls the eye out. If you get anything that affects cranial nerve six, so you could have an internal carotid artery aneurysm, or you could have a high intracranial pressure. So, for example, a medulla cytoma of the brainstem. One of the very first characteristics that occurs is the eye starts to drift in, right? So you got to be really careful as an eye doc to say, okay, if I'm assessing something, this could just be a, a bog standard esotropia. It could just be an amblyopia case. Or if you listen to the patient, the patient said, my eye turn changed. So that particular case, we sent it out for an MRI and actually came back. There was actually a tumor growing around the ICA. And we would have looked very, very dumb if we decided to treat that as a vision therapy case. And then six months down the line, it turns out the the patient had a brain tumor and we were doing VT on him. So, So from our perspective, those types of red flags are things that the doctors will look for. The other thing you can do is a visual field test. So checking for blind spots, if you start to see a hemianopsy on one side of the vision, that usually means, yep, there, there's something else going on here, and it's probably not appropriate to put this patient into VT. The other thing I find is very useful is uh, contrast sensitivity. So there's uh, contrast. You can look at gratings that go from very, very high contrast, like very, very obvious black and white bars, to very, very subtle black and white bars. And if somebody has um, a longstanding weakness in their visual system, if they're an amblyope, they'll typically have a very slight drop-off on their contrast sensitivity function. If somebody has pathology, you'll typically see a a drop. They'll, they'll They'll just drop right out. So there's two or three tests that we can do in the clinic that we can say, okay, this is probably not the patient has a vision issue, but it's not a vision rehabilitation issue. It's more a pathology issue. And obviously, we check for the other things, like if the patient has glaucoma or they have cataracts or stuff like that. So I think the red flags for us are more pathology because when you're dealing with the brain, you know, people love to, um, not necessarily dumb down, but they love to simplify vision therapy and say, well, you're doing eye exercises. I would love to rename vision therapy or binocular vision therapy, ocular neurology, because you're essentially dealing with the brain, right? So if, if I'm training somebody to move their eyes, I, I'm not just doing eye exercise, I'm training the brain to, to better control the system. And I think you know, under, understanding that that's what we're doing, we're getting into the machinery of the brain well, if a patient comes to us with a certain problem, 99 times out of 100, out of hundred, it might be a binocular vision issue or a vision therapy issue, but that one out of 100 could be, could be a brain tumor masquerading as a binocular vision issue. So knowing those red flags and making sure we pick them up is a really critical part to the initial assessment that we do here in the clinic.
0: Are there any common statements that patients may make that healthcare providers should be aware of that may indicate a vision issue?
1: Sure, and I'll, I'll kind of maybe break that up into two categories and talk about concussion and learning.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I would say from a concussion standpoint, I can think of at least three to five things that you really want to watch for. The first would be tracking issues when I'm reading, like reading has become very difficult since my concussion, or I just read less. Okay. second one would be light sensitivity is a big one. A lot of these patients come into the consults wearing sunglasses, even, even if you turn off the lights. Uh, the third one for concussion would be extreme sensitivity to fluorescent lighting. If you think about fluorescent lighting, it's, it's kind of a flickering light where you and I wouldn't perceive the flickering, but a concussion patient may. So that's called a critical flicker fusion frequency or the CFF. Their CFF drops, basically. So that'd be the third one. The fourth one would be difficulty handling busy areas. So for example, the patient will say, if I go to a grocery store or a mall, that peripheral motion of people walking around me, I feel like I just want to do this. I just can't handle all that peripheral motion. And I think that's that's really important to pay attention to because if the patient stays in that environment, they start to drift into a fight or flight reflex mode. So they actually can get anxiety attacks in that way, in that mode. And they, they may go to the family physician and complain more about the anxiety or the anxiety attack rather than what triggered the anxiety. And next thing you know, the physician's putting them on an anti-anxiety med, not realizing well, actually it's not anxiety all the time, it's only anxiety, it's situational anxiety, right? So I think that's that's an important factor. The other thing is lack of tolerance on computer screens. So they will say, I really can't sustain uh, work on a computer and when I try to scroll, a lot of the patients will, will say this very particular phrase. They will say, when I scroll on a computer screen, I just wanna do this, I just can't look at the motion. Not many of them come in saying they see double. You might get some who, who'll say, yeah, when I look up close, things drift in and out. It, it, it's also really important how you ask the question. Some patients will say, do, some, so, some docs will say, do you see double? And the patient might think, well, he or she is asking me, do I see double all the time? Well, no, I don't. But no, I'm asking, do you see double, even if it's only some of the time? So some patients say, oh, yeah, I see double when I'm reading and it kind of sometimes, and they, they'll even describe how it goes double. Some of them will say, well, it's kind of oblique and it goes like this. So they'll they'll describe it to you. But you have to ask the question correctly to get the answer that you're looking for. Um, and I always phrase it, you know, do you see double even if, even if it's only sometimes? And you tend to, tend to get a better response. So that's more the concussion side, the learning difficulty side. I think with kids, you have to be more careful because my point was they've lived in that abnormal visual world their whole life. They don't, they've never known any different, whereas a concussion patient will, will give you all their symptoms because they saw perfectly fine before the injury. So I think with kids, what I'll often say to them is, you know, when you're looking at print up close, is it always clear or does sometimes go clear, fuzzy, clear, fuzzy? And I'll use that phrase, clear, fuzzy, clear, fuzzy, because if I say, does it drift in and out of focus? A six-year-old doesn't know what I'm asking. Focus might mean attention, right? So I I try to use visuals, or I I, I try to use language that is more appropriate for their age. Um, So I'll ask about, do things go clear, fuzzy, clear, fuzzy? I'll ask if they have any trouble with tracking. I'll ask the parent if the kid has issues honking down and just getting stuff done. That's that's a difficult question, because sometimes kids are just kids, and there's nothing going on at all, right? I actually put a lot of stock in talking, if possible, to the teacher. So what are you noticing in the classroom? Is little Johnny much more behaved from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., and he's much more of a nightmare when it's, you know, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. So is the kid having more melting down episodes towards the end of the day? Because that's more of a fatigue pattern. So I think there's, you know, it's kind of like the old saying, history, history, history. You really got to ask questions in these cases, and I think one of one of the biggest things i will say to the parents is have you listened to your child reading out loud because the parent will say i think my child's vision is okay i think their reading is okay well let me ask you a question if you're reading in your head can anybody else hear you no whereas if i if if, if a parent listens to me reading out loud and and then they start to realize geez he's making a lot of substitutions like he's substituting words he'll say a word that's similar to there but not what's there so for example they might say um you know where instead of there, for example. You know, so that's a visual discrimination thing. Or the patient's reading and they're losing their place. But if you don't get the kid to read out loud, you're not going to notice. So I think asking those types of questions is really important. And, and again, touching base with the teacher if you can. That's not always possible, but it's useful.
0: Is there any link between dyslexia and dyslexia? That is
1: an excellent question. My, here, here's my, my impression of dyslexia. And again, I've, ta- I've spoken to, so I'm not speaking from an uneducated perspective. I have spoken to psychology psychologists that we collaborate with, I've spoken to speech path. Dyslexia in my mind is a little bit of a throwaway term. It just means they're not reading very well. We don't know we don't know why. When when a parent says to me, my child's been diagnosed with dyslexia, my next immediate question is, what type? And if they say, Well what do you mean? I didn't know there was different types. There's dysphonetic dyslexia and there's dysidetic dyslexia. Dysphonetic means I don't understand how sounds and words go together. Right? So if I say to a child in grade 7 spell the word future and the kid says f-u-c-h-e-r they're incorrect but they're correct phonetically because future sounds like ch right however if a child says tries to spell future and puts in p's and q's then that child has a phonetic issue they probably need to see a speech path however if a child says f-u-c-h-e-r their phonetics are intact they just can't remember what the word looked like So that's dysidetic dyslexia, which is more likely based on visual memory. So if I say to you, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here, um, (laughs) can you spell the word station? Go ahead.
0: S-T-A-T-I-O-N.
1: Now, try it going backwards.
0: N-O-I-T-A-T-S.
1: Now, you were kind of looking up to the side. Were you trying to picture the word? (laughs)
0: Yes. <laughs> That's
1: visual memory. So visual memory is my ability. So as soon as I asked you to go forwards, yeah, no problem. I've seen that a million times. When I say go backwards, you immediately looked up and were accessed and I could see and you, your eyes were actually going this way. So you're, you're, you're visualizing what the word looks like. That is visual memory. So imagine if I asked you to spell station going backwards, you, you looked up and there was nothing there. You'd be kind of in trouble, right? So you spelling station backwards is as difficult as a grade two kid learning a new word going forwards And it's gonna be pretty darn hard if they don't have visual memory. And if my eye teaming gets knocked off, the first thing to drop is visual memory. I'm no longer able to recall information visually and if I can't recall visually, my only other option is to try to sound out the word. So future becomes F-U-C-H-E-R instead of F-U-T-U-R-E. Station becomes S-T-A-S-H-I-O-N rather than S-T-A-T-I-O-N, right? So phonetic spellers tend to have visual memory issues, and visual memory issues stem ultimately from eye issues. And, and that's a really key thing. So I'm not going to say I ignore the term dyslexia, but it's, it's really just another label. It's a label that, okay, we've got to get beyond these alphabet soups of labels of ADHD and opposition defiance disorder and dyslexia, and these terms that kind of, okay, we have a label for little Johnny, therefore life's cool, because we can label him, him or her with something. What I'm a bigger fan of doing is say, let's dig underneath the label and try to figure out what's going on with the kid. Because if we can figure out that there's a dysfunction within their visual system, and even better, we can treat that. And then we see their, their supposed dyslexia decrease or even disappear, which we see a lot in the clinic here. Our, our post-treatment metrics, we're getting about, I would say, anywhere between 70 to 84% of kids off of IEPs within a year. So I'm not saying we get every kid to 10 out of 10 But I would say the vast majority were getting them from 1 out of 10 to 6 or 7 out of 10, maybe even 8 out of 10, enough to get them off of the accommodations at school. And the reason why that's important is the average kid, these are statistics from the Learning Disability Association of Canada. The average kid with an IEP in place in a Canadian school, when they finish their educational system, approximately from when they finish high school to assuming retiring at age 65, they will earn approximately $1.98 million less over their lifetime in terms of income. So the, the CRA should be interested in that. It's more taxes for them. <laughs> the other thing is the cost to the educational system is in the range of about $450,000. Uh, increased cost from uh, grade one to the end of high school and over 60% of that cost comes from the parents' pockets, paying for tutoring, paying for psych ed evaluations. So you look at the total cost, it's a second mortgage to the parents and it's nearly a $2 million hit to the individual. So, if we can stem that tide a lot earlier and, and get at least some of these kids off these IEPs, I, I think it's going to have a trickle down effect to the point where economically it makes sense, healthcare wise it makes sense, and from a medical standpoint it makes sense.
0: You used to hear the saying, don't sit too close to the TV, it's bad for your vision. Yep. Do you think that the amount of technology that kids are using now can have an impact? on
1: their vision? I think, I think the answer is yes to that. In the, in the 60s and 70s, vision therapy was looked at as voodoo and hokey, and now it's looked as, oh, actually, there's something to it, because the CITT study was published, and maybe we were wrong. Maybe there is something to vision therapy. I, I think myopia and, and near-point activities being interlingual, I think we're kind of going through that same stage. I still think the research needs to get stronger in that area, so I'll be upfront about saying that. But I think it stands to reason, why, as human beings, are we still here? We're pretty good at adapting to our environment. What was it Darwin said? It's not the strongest of the species that survives, but it's the one that's the best able to adapt to its environment, right? What are we doing now more than ever before? We're taking these things out and we're stuck here and we're everybody's doing near-point work, right? And And I think there's very little doubt amongst the eye care community that myopia is increasing dramatically in prevalence, right? So if I decide to do lots and lots of close work, and we would agree that my my visual system was not naturally designed to read or do close work, right? Because if you put our existence as a species into 24 hours, relatively speaking, we've probably been reading for less than two minutes as a species, right? So do you think that our visual system was naturally designed for close work? Was it naturally designed for reading? If I drop my keys on the floor, am I gonna start from the top left of the room and go like this to search for my keys? No, I'm gonna look there, I got my keys, right? So reading, and it sounds bizarre to say, but actually reading is not a natural task. It's an important task, but I don't think it's something that the visual system was naturally designed to do. So I think if, if, if we look at a computer device or an iPhone or an iPad, and we stay glued to that thing for four hours without a break, I'll, a lot of my patients will say, you know, before I went myopic, it was really weird because I went through this period where I would look up close and then I'd look far away and it was blurry for a little bit, and then I'd blink a couple of times and then eventually it would go clear. I think what happens essentially in myopia is the patient engages in close work, and if they do it excessively, eventually the visual system says, I'm just going to rob from Peter to pay Paul. I'm going to make my near vision better at the expense of distance vision, and that is linked to our ability to adapt as a species. I I think that makes perfect sense, and I'm sure it's not as simple as that. I'm sure there's other factors. Uh, People with strong genetic traits in their families, I'm sure will go into that trend a lot faster, but I still think you have to have the environmental trigger there to set it off. I, I've lost count the number of patients who said to me, I was never myopic until I went to university. And all of a sudden my distance vision started. Well, what do you do more at university? You read,
0: That's right? Funny.
1: I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the funny part is I remember going back to my optometry school in the UK, and I would say out of you know 70 or 80 students, maybe 10 of us were myopic in the first year. By the time you got to the, the fourth year after doing, after doing your externships and everything else, I would say th- three quarters plus of the class were myopic. So that's a study by itself. And I think most optometrists would probably have a similar take or slant on the people that were in their optometry class. And, and believe me, you do a lot of reading when you're in optometry school. So, so I think the excessive amount of close work is, is really, really important. And I think optometry and ophthalmology, any eye care professional and, and optician need to start using the phrase visual hygiene. You know, you go to see your dentist, they're not just going to look in your mouth and poke around and fix your feelings and say, yeah, don't worry about flossing your teeth. They're they're going to talk to you about keeping your teeth healthy. I think there's a similar discussion that needs to be had with patients about their vision to say, look, you know, we can't get rid of technology. It's here. But it's obviously not common sense to sit down and look at a computer screen for two, three hours. I think where the interesting research is going now, there's been some research, uh, Jeff Cooper, an optometrist in the States, did a really good summary lecture at COVD a couple of years ago. And he summarized all the evidence of myopia research over the last 50-plus years. And a lot of the research shows that if you give near point plus, so when somebody's myopic, you, you you give them a minus lens. But if you give somebody a plus lens, it actually reduces strain at near, right? And there's been some research, not on everybody, but patients that tend to have inward eye turns, that giving a patient a bifocal or giving them a near add actually reduces the progression of the myopia. And actually, if you give somebody homatropine, which is a pretty strong drop, you put a drop in your eye, dilate dilates your pupil and knocks out your near reflex, atropine can actually significantly, if not stop myopia progression altogether. So you look at this and you say, ah, that's interesting. So when you use homatropine and we knock out accommodation or my ability to near focus, myopia significantly decreases in its progression. So do you think near point activities and sustained amounts of time up close have a bearing on on whether or not I'm going to go more myopic over time? I think time will tell we need more research my intuitive gut feel and it's 2017 if somebody listens to this recording in 10 years time they might go back and go he was bang on Um, because i really feel that it's not coincidence that if you look at 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 the the explosion in myopia it's also correlating with the explosion of near-point devices and technology that we're using up close and and i think you know myopia is an adaptation to relieve strain and as a physio, you'll appreciate that whenever you have strain, the body always adapts to try to relieve the strain, right? Even if it's even if it's an abnormal adaptation. So I think myopia is an abnormal adaptation to relieve near-point strain. Therefore, one way that you could reduce that strain is you can't take the iPad away, you can't get rid of iPhones, technology is here to stay. You can reduce the amount of time people are on these devices, but also it might be worth having at least starting a discussion to say, Maybe if somebody is in an occupation or a job where they're doing a lot of close work, some low plus lenses at near might be very useful for those people because it's it's reducing strain for a task that is not natural. If, if you get onto an ice skating rink, do you wear the same shoes you're wearing now? You put on a pair of skates, right? Why? Because it's a different task. If I'm using my vision for something that's not natural, why wouldn't I use a device to try to help me see more comfortably when I'm doing that task if it's not natural? And I, and I think that stands to reason. So, my answer is, yes, I think it, I think they are linked. And I think, you know, the old, the old tales of, you know, don't read in the dark, it's going to ruin your eyes. I think there's something to it. And I think that, that truth comes from somewhere.
0: This is a bit off topic. But yep. if you have laser eye surgery, then, yep. if you go back to reading a computer a lot or putting a lot of strain on your eyes, yep. can your vision get worse again?
1: Absolutely. I, in fact, I've got one case that I dealt with. A patient was actually an eye care professional. And they had laser done, I think there were about minus three, minus four before the laser, had the laser done, and I think about three or four years later, maybe five years later, had regressed to a minus two and had developed nearly two and a half diopters of astigmatism after having the laser done. And, you know, of course, then they're thinking keratoconus, is it a corneal condition? They had all sorts of workups done. Everything came up normal. um, But they couldn't realize why she'd regressed back and she didn't have enough corneal thickness to do the procedure again. And I had a look at her. And she had, a, she had a fairly significant esophoria, so the eye tended to drift inwards. Uh, the, her death perception was good. She was pretty much 10 out of 10 on death perception. But her ability to go in and out on Virgin's facility, she could go in, but she got completely locked on the way out. Um, but she was a definite ease of at near. So for her to do different tasks, she's going to be under strain just to pull her eyes out. Um, so we basically found... And she also had a vertical slip that she needed a prism for. So basically, this patient had a fair amount of ocular motor dysfunction, not enough to make her see double, but enough to put her visual system under a lot of strain. So do I think it's coincidence that she regressed after her laser and she happened to have a lot of ocular motor strain? No, I think I think that makes perfect sense. So I think you raise a good point because somebody going for laser eye surgery, you almost want to make sure that their ocular motor system is intact enough that if they have the laser surgery, they're not going to get into complications afterwards. I mean, I've, I've seen it's not common, so I'm not trying to, do anything scary here or produce scare tactics, it's not common at all. But I would say over the years, I've probably seen at least two, maybe three patients who developed double vision post LASIK. So they had the LASIK and they saw 20 20 in each eye, but now they're seeing double. And I think the laser surgery didn't cause the problem, what the laser surgery did, because most surgeons will slightly overcorrect you. So if you're a minus two, they'll laser you to about a minus 250. So what that means is they're minusing you a little bit. That's not a big deal because they want to get good acuity in 20 20 but if they over minus you and your ocular motor system's kind of shaky, that might be enough to knock you out of alignment and make you see double. Now, we treated those patients fairly easy, but we had to give them a prism, do some vi- vision therapy. I think two two out of the three, they're not wearing glasses at all and they're able to fuse, one out of the three, we had to keep a prism in the glasses. So they were, they were kind of annoyed because they did the laser surgery to get out of glasses, and now they're wearing a pair of glasses with a prism. That's not for clarity, but it's to make sure that they don't see double. So I think, I think laser surgery and ocular motor function are are linked, and I think you know the, the surgical community for laser surgery needs to be aware that not commonly, but it's probably not a bad idea to look at the ocular motor integrity of those patients before you do the laser surgery. Because I've had laser surgery done on myself. I'm a, I'm a very big fan of it. I think I think it's useful because you know trust me, it's not much fun being a minus four. You take your glasses off, you can't see anything, and you got to wear contacts and glasses all the time. But I think we would all agree it's not sensible to do laser surgery on somebody who has an unstable ocular motor system because then you laser them. You don't really know what they're going to be afterwards.
0: Let's go into the vision therapy
1: part
0: of it a bit. Yep. Why and when would you use prisms?
1: Prisms are, they can be used for two situations. The first situation, well, you can use a lot of situations, but in general, they can be therapeutic or they can be compensatory. So, therapeutic is I'm using it to teach your visual system something. So, for example, if, if I get a prism bar here, if you look at my eye right here, and if I put a prism in front, you can see the eye still looks straight, but if I bring the prism bar down, what you see is the eye going in. And if I bring this up, then the eye goes back out again. right? So depending on how I hold the prism, I can, I can make the eye go in, or I can make the eye go out. So I can, I can use a prism to basically teach the system strength, if you like, although really it's brain. right? It's kind of the same thing as me doing this. I can use a prism to make somebody see double. So I can make you see two of me, one image with one eye, one image with the other eye. So you can use prisms from a therapeutic standpoint. You can also use a prism from a compensatory standpoint. So if you come into me and you say, Dr. Quaid, I'm seeing double. And I'm seeing double all the time. And I see one image of you here and one image of you here. I can take a prism and I can prescribe it in such a way to put the two images together so that you don't see double anymore. Now, is that fixing your problem? No, because if you take the glasses off, you're still seeing double. It's compensating for the problem. If somebody comes in seeing double absolutely we will prescribe them a prism to alleviate the double vision. But our goal is to do therapy to hopefully get rid of at least some of the prism, hopefully all of it. But whether they end up with a prism in their prescription or not long term, our ultimate goal is getting them functional, getting the system flexible, because it's, it's, it's really important to have the flexibility in the system. Everybody gets caught up in the prescription and says, oh, we just need a pair of glasses. All you need is a prism. You just need a stronger pair of glasses. That's that. That's about as silly and as daft as saying to a physiotherapist, if I break, if I broke my leg and my leg was weak and my leg was getting weaker, I just need a stronger crutch. As a physio, you look at that and say, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. You want to do rehab and strengthen the leg. That's exactly our argument from a visual standpoint. Is a prism is use, is a useful tool. It's not the be all and end all. In fact, the video that we have of that concussion patient who was leaning off by. 15 to 20 degrees, we put a prism in place because when when he stood straight, the floor looked tilted to him. So you can use a prism conventionally or you can prescribe what's called a yoked prism where the prism bases are in the same direction. So I can take somebody normal, depending on how normal you think we are, I can take somebody normal and I can make them walk funny. I can make them walk right gaze or left gaze. So if somebody comes to me and they're messed up and they say, if I look at the floor and the floor looks tilted to me and I have to tilt my body to make the floor look flat, I can take a prism and I can make the floor look this way so that they'll come back to this. So I can, I can actually manipulate the entire gait of the patient with a yoked prism, whereas a non-yoked prism is used for taking a patient who's double and putting the two images back together. So prisms and lenses from our perspective are the most valuable tool that we have, and that's why I've often been asked the question by allied health healthcare professionals because, you know, you often get a physio or a chiro or an OT, and, and, and they'll say, well, you know, there's some exercises that we can do with the patient. I understand there's a lot of overlap. But I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, if, if the patient has had vision therapy done the way it should be done, the way I think it should be done, and the patient's fairly stable, we can maybe give some maintenance exercises for you to incorporate into everything else you're doing in PT. But if the patient has a visual midline shift where either they're shifted this way or this is shifted or they're seeing double, really you got to alleviate that first, solidify it, and then we pass it over and, and, and work with you folks, or we do it in parallel depending on how severe the issue is. So I think... Lenses and prisms is really what defines rehabilitative VT. And I think that's something that is not said enough. But I think it's really important for optometrists to realize that, to say, you know, lenses and prisms are not just for prescribing for eyewear to make people see better. They're prescribed to make people's function work better. And so lenses and prisms, to me, are are the most valuable tool that we have.
0: How do you get someone from that point where they're using a prism to lessening it or they're not using
1: it it's it's a process i would say it depends on the case but vision therapy again if you go back to the citt study which was effectively one of the landmark studies on vision therapy the way we do it here we essentially do one week of vision or one hour of vision therapy once a week so it's once a week session we reassess all the patient's metrics usually every every 10 to 12 sessions to make sure they're improving but during that one hour vision therapy we're teaching the patient visual skills we're teaching them how to better use their eyes together and the homework. So when they're when they're not in the office seeing us over the week in between the sessions, we as long as the patient can demonstrate to us that they understand the procedure and they know how to do it, they might be able to do it perfectly, but they know how to do it. We'll relegate that to homework and say, for the next week, I want you to do this for 20, 25 minutes at home. And then we see you back next week. If you're able to demonstrate that you're able to do that, we're going to relegate that to, boom, that's done. Now we're going to teach you a different technique. So we typically have anywhere from I mean, I would say 50 to 100 different visual exercises that we can prescribe. But it's it's about the patient understanding. It's not just about doing near-point activity work. It's about understanding what's going on with my vision while I'm doing the procedure. So the biggest fallacy that a lot of people think is that you do vision therapy on a patient. No, what you're doing is you're setting up the situation for learning to occur, but you want the patient to discover how their visual system functions because ultimately they're in charge of it. And it's, 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 it's really interesting for, for example, on a near point of convergence activity, very simple NPC, I could just get a patient to do this all day long. They probably won't get better. But if you say to the patient, I'm looking here now, pay attention to the background. You should be seeing two of what's in the background. And when you move them together, the two images begin fur, further apart. Maybe I can take a lens, I can put it in front of one eye and I can make one image jump up. So you're, you're teaching the patient something about their visual system. So I think it's vision therapy is kind of cool because you're, you're essentially helping the patient discover how their vision works and discovering that it's abnormal and discovering what it should look like. If I say my PhD was in psychophysics, it sounds boring. If I say my PhD was in illusions, it sounds cool, right? People are like, ooh, illusions, that's cool. Well, what is an illusion? An illusion is a visual or other type of sensory input that tricks the visual system. So it's not actually happening, but you believe it's happening, right? Most patients don't believe me when I say, Normally, without any head injury, we, we see double all the time. So, What do you mean you see double all the time? I'll say, well, look at me, put your finger in front of you, keep looking at me. How many fingers do you see? Oh, I see two. Now, look at your finger. You see one finger, right? Yeah, I see one finger. How many of me do you see in the background? Oh, I see two of you. Well, that's interesting. So if I look at you, I see two fingers. If I look at my finger, I see two of you. So in fact, we see what's called physiological diplopia. We see double all the time we don't see double of what we're looking at, but everything in the background and everything in the foreground is actually double and blurred. And it's a very small area of fusion that we have to make things single and clear. But I, I, I find it absolutely fascinating that most of us walk around this world thinking that we see clearly all the time. But the reality is, as you're looking at me, everything around me is not clear. You know, I'm clear, my face is clear, but if you even, my hand's out here, if you're looking at me, I'm clear, you know my hand is there, but the hand is not clear, right? So the brain is actually pulling an illusion on us all the time, tricking us into thinking that our entire visual world looks clear. So if I were to define what vision therapy is in a nutshell, it's it's teaching the brain to realize how the normal visual system works and how to manipulate it. And there's a wonderful quote, I can't remember who said it wasn't me, it was somebody a lot more intelligent than me. Um, it was somebody who said, vision is the brain's way of touching the world. And I think that's a really cool quote because if you look at people who are very visually unsure, and I'm sure as a physio, you might see these patients who are, they have very unstable gait, their balance issues, not vertigo. Vertigo is absolutely a vestibular problem. But if the patient has dizziness and, un, and instability, they will they will tend to touch something. And as soon as they touch something, they've got two legs on the ground and a, and a hand touching the wall, they'll immediately feel more grounded. So why do they have to touch the wall? Because if you think of those three stools, vision, vestibular, and proprioception, if my visual system's weak, I need to argument the signal coming from the other two to compensate. I can't really argument the vestibular, but the proprioception, I can argument it. I can touch something and get more grounding. So, you know, the visual system really is the brain's way of touching the world. It's the brain's way of, of, of grounding the body.
0: Where do you see the future of vision therapy going?
1: My hope is that vision therapy becomes Pretty mainstream, just like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech and language pathology, and the interesting part is, you know, with, with every earned due respect to the other areas, you look at the amount, the sheer volume of research and evidence that's coming out in vision therapy now, it's it's substantial, and it's really hard to ignore it. And there was a brain injury publication, in, and it's the consensus guidelines for mild traumatic brain injury. It was published in Brain Injury last year in twenty sixteen. And if you look in that guideline document, which is actually published by a group of uh, psychologists in Hamilton, I believe. Very cool document. They looked at all these different areas like physiotherapy, vision therapy, psychological services, all these different areas of concussion healthcare, And they assigned a level of evidence to each area, which is a really cool document. And if you look under, in that research paper in brain injury, it, I think it was section 10.10, they allocated a level of evidence B to vision therapy, and that's actually quite high. You know, see most of the errors in there were level C. A is like a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, which virtually nobody had. And they had actually stated in there specifically that vision therapy is something that unfortunately gets, usually gets left to the end of rehab. It should be brought in much earlier because it tends to be, you know, the patient comes um, fairly symptomatic. They might have broken limbs. They might have broken bones. All that stuff gets fixed. And that's usually towards the end of the therapy, somebody goes, oh, you're seeing double. So that tends to get tends to get missed more towards the end. So the future of vision therapy, what I would hope to see is kind of similar to orthopedics and PTs is they tend to work hand in hand. And I think that's kind of obvious, right? You know, if I break my leg, I should have the leg reset. Or if I need some surgery, do the surgery. And then if, I, if I've got to go to rehab, the doc would write a prescription and say, go see a PT, get some rehab. What I'm hoping is that vision therapy gets at that same level where we are a, you know, patients can come and access us directly, but I, I really wanna hope that psychology, speech path, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, these professions start to look at us and say, look, this is an integral part of what needs to be treated. I know that Eric Singman at Johns Hopkins, which you know he's the head of neuro-ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a minor position. Um, and, and he is actively engaging in VT. So, and, and part of me thinks, yeah, vision therapy is therapeutic in nature. Our clinic doesn't sell glasses. We don't do routine eye care. We're really kind of a different duck. So this type of care, I believe, actually may even belong within a hospital arena or even an outpatient setting, but it should be connected to rehab facilities. The dream I have long-term is having centers of excellence where you have PT, you've got chiro, you've got psychological services, you've got vestibular audiological services, and you have rehabilitative VT all encompassed within one facility. So the patient comes in and has an assessment pretty much from everybody. And then you look at each area and say, okay, how pooched is the patient in all these areas? And if this area is nine out of 10, probably doesn't need a lot of work. This area is one out of 10 that needs a lot of work. So that's the way I see vision therapy fitting in. And, and it's, it's more of a rehabilitative arena. And, and I, I feel that, you know, you mentioned that you're a PT. I mean, PT and vision therapy should be like this. Really, mm-hmm. if you look at most of the patients that you see. so And vice versa. So my hope is that vision therapy becomes a household name or the average person. You say, do you know what vision therapy is? The average person goes, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Because right now, you ask most people, do you know what rehabilitative VT is? They kind of give you a weird look and go, I, I haven't really heard of that before. So that's, that's where I hope VT goes in the future. And I think it will.
0: And where can people find out more about you?
1: Um, well, our clinic, best place is our website, gvtc.ca, so uh, guelphvisiontherapycenter.ca. The other website that I like to give is um, COVD, so the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. So they're a US based group, but it's uh, www.covd.org. Um, they've got a lot of really good research papers on there, a lot of good articles. The other organization is o- OEP, or the Optometric Extension Program. Uh, I think it's oepf.org is the website for that, but covd.org is, is the website too. But our website is gvtc.ca, and there's actually a questionnaire on there. You can run a questionnaire on yourself. You can. We've got a two-hour lecture on there that you can, if you've got the patience to watch that. You fill in a form and you get free access to the lecture, so you can watch that. And if you're if you need a consult, you just hit submit. You send the form into us, and our clinic will contact you. But we also obviously take referrals from allied healthcare professionals, but. We, you do not need a referral to be seen at our clinic. Um, we always find out who else is involved in your care and make sure they're competent on any reports. But in terms of finding out more information, I think the on our website too, on the gbtc.ca website, we actually have a section for research papers. And we've got some actual PDF papers with a summary of what the research found. So if somebody wants to dig and find out more about it, but they actually want to look at the evidence that's in the medical journals and the optometric journals, that's, it's right there on our website too. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.